It seems to me that in every group of friends, there's at least one who can be described as that friend who has, you might say, no filter. You know the one? Is everyone looking at you? You know, the one, the, the, the one friend in your group who has no filter, meaning the one person that you're friends with who seems to just sort of say what they think unfiltered. Now, is that good or bad? Well, what's bad about that person is that sometimes they can be so blunt that they hurt feelings, especially down in the South where nobody ever says what they really think. <laughs> Or maybe they say stuff and you cringe or you're embarrassed by them. That's what can be bad about that friend with no filter. But what is good about that friend with no filter, we all know this, is that there are times when they're the only ones who will say what everyone else is thinking and what everyone else wishes someone would say. But we don't have the courage to say it. This guy, he doesn't care, right? And in a way, that's refreshing. In a way, that's a relief that they will just say it even if it's difficult to say. As you've read through 1 John, many of you have, I hope, uh, been reading it every day. It strikes me that John is like that friend that has no filter. He just says what needs to be said. On the one hand, here it is, he's a pastor, he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's writing the very word of God, but you can hear the pastor's heart as he's talking. I mean, as you've read 1 John, have you noticed how many times he says, beloved, dear friends, dear children, little children, you can feel the love he has for his people coming through these pages, and of utmost concern to him is that They're truly saved, that they're truly right with God. It breaks his heart to think that some of his church members might have a superficial relationship, a superficial faith, but not a saving faith. And so he wants to help people answer that question. Can we know? Can we ever truly know if we're saved? If so, how can we be certain? What are the indicators? What is the evidence? What is the assurance of salvation? It's a theme through the whole book. That's why I titled the series that you may know. If you're just joining us, we're going through this series on 1 John. There's a sense in which this this no-filter way of talking, I think he wants to sort of sharpen the edges a little bit. What do I mean by that? He wants to sort of heighten the contrast. To those who are unsure if they're truly saved, he wants to sharpen that level of certainty one way or another. In other words, he wants people who are not truly saved to be able to say that clearly. I know, based on my reading of 1 John, you might say at the end of this, I know the the contrast has been heightened. I know for a fact I only have superficial faith. I'm not, in fact, saved. I need to be born again. On the other hand, he wants those who are true Christians to know, to know that they know that they are, in fact, believers. But he wants to sharpen the edges and that's why it's a book, you might say, First John is a book without any twilight zone. Doesn't it feel that way as you're reading it? It's black or white, uh, uh, dark or light, lies or truth, love or hate, life or death. So over and over in this letter, he's coming back to these same three 
indicators of how a person can truly know if they're saved. I called them in the first uh, part of the series, I called them tests, but I think tests gives the wrong idea, as if somehow you have to pass these tests to be saved. It's just the opposite. Uh, I think I said last week, let's think of it this way. It's a COVID test, not a math test. It's not some, some uh, uh, college entrance exam. It's not the SAT where you have to get a certain score to get in. It's like a COVID test. It just reveals if you got, it reveals what you got. So it's really an indicators, probably. I should call them indicators. And the same three indicators, he's going to come back to them over and over again. The moral indicator, the moral test, right living. The social indicator, the love test, do you love? And the uh, truth indicator, the doctrinal indicator, do you believe correctly about who Jesus is? You might put it another way, a moral person, uh, excuse me, uh, the moral indicator, a person who is truly saved will live a life that seeks to honor Christ's commands. The love indicator, a person who is truly saved will not have hatred for his brothers and sisters, but will love. The doctrine indicator, a person who's truly saved will believe the truth about who Jesus is. So today we're going to look in chapter 2 at verses 3 through 11. I invite you to turn there. And here's, here's how we're going to uh, uh, tackle this uh, text. Uh, we are going to look carefully at the first two indicators. The uh, right living indicator, those who are truly saved will seek to honor Christ's commands, right? The, 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 you might call it the... Uh, the, the moral test, the holiness test. And then we're going to look at the second one, the love test, the social test. Those who are, are truly in Christ will have love for the brothers. We won't have time to get to the third one, I don't think. The third one is, is, is going to be dealt with uh, verses later. It's like in, in chapter, in the uh, uh, same chapter, but in verse 18. So here's how we're going to do it. We'll look at that first test. We'll look at that second test. And sandwiched between them is verses 7 and 8. And that's just like a, a parenthesis about what the nature of love is. Okay. So are you there? 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Let me remind you of the context. John is writing to a group of false teachers who've left the church. They've started their own heresy, their own cult. They call themselves the Gnostics from the Greek uh, gnosis, which means to know. And they said it's possible to know God through this secret knowledge, through the Spirit. Their thinking was this. Your, it's like your spirit can be in fellowship with God. Your soul can have a relationship with God, but not your body. Therefore, what your body does is unimportant. It doesn't matter what you do or fail to do with your body, since all God cares about is your spirit, they would falsely claim. They would say it's possible, in other words, to know God and live however you like. Now, listen, that is an ancient heresy, but can I point out how incredibly modern that is? Is that not modern way of thinking? You can have a relationship with God that has no effect on righteous living. It's perfectly modern. I hear it all the time. Well, preacher, the way, the way I see it, the way I look at it, in my understanding of things, me and the man upstairs, we're good. We're good. We, we have an understanding. I don't need the church. I don't need any religion. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I don't need the Bible to tell me what to do. Me and God, we got it all worked out. I, I can have my own church anywhere. I'm good with God. We're good. The way I see it, we're good. I can keep living how I want. Do what you always want to say? Of course you're good with a God you made up. Did you know that? Every time we invent a God, conveniently, that God believes it just like we do. Isn't that something? Nobody ever makes up a God who contradicts them. They make a God in their own image, and wouldn't you know it? Huh, 
Me and that God seem to agree on just about everything. I want to say, of course, of course. The God you make up will always agree with you. Because you made him up. The other thing I want to say, so that you don't think I'm, I'm picking on this person or being too hard on them by way of compassion, is that deep down, I sort of agree with them in this sense. The key word is the way I see it, in my understanding, the way I look at it. I want to say exactly the way I see it, the way I understand it. I would have never come up with this. I would have never invented Christianity. I would have never done it this way. If it were up to me to design the religion, and it were up to me to write the Bible, there'd be, it wouldn't look anything like this. But that's just it. I don't get to make the rules. I come under the authority of Scripture. Why? Because he's not a God I make in my own image. He's a God who made me in his own image. The problem, of course, with saying, well, I don't see it that way, is that I'm, spiritually speaking, blind. So I need the revelation of God. If we're going to relate to God, it must be on his terms, not ours. John says in strong language, one way you can have assurance that you know him is that you keep his commands. And one way to know it's all a sham, it's a lie, is to say you know him, but you don't keep his commands. Here's how he says it in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, these verses shouldn't be shocking to us. Does this sound familiar? Doesn't our Lord Jesus say the same thing in John 14? John 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. John 14, 24, whoever does not love me doesn't keep my words. Now, a couple things to point out with this. One, notice, and this is very important, notice the gospel order to this. Both in these words in 1 John and in Jesus' words in John, notice it does not say, if we keep his commandments and if we're good enough, then maybe, just maybe, we can have a relationship with God. That's not what it says. It's the other way around. He's saying we know that we know him. We know that we've been saved. Once we're saved, then we keep his commandments. Every other man-made religion, including legalism, is the opposite of this gospel. I've tried to make this point in multiple ways. In every other religion, you can never truly know if you've made it. You can never really know if you're right with God. Whether the Muslims who would tell you honestly, hey, are you going to go to heaven to be with Allah forever? An Orthodox Muslim would have to admit, well, I hope so. Or I, I, I want to believe so. But they think it's arrogant to say absolutely yes. Why? Because they haven't lived their full life yet. And so when Allah puts all the good deeds versus the bad deeds on the scale, they don't know there's still some life to be lived. So how can you truly know? And really, in, 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 in uh, uh, legalists are the same way. How do you know? If it's based on how you live, and you hear that all the time, doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter your religion, as long as you're a moral person, as long as you're a decent person, all that matters is how you live. Well, then technically you can never really be sure that you've got an eternity in heaven because the verdict is not in. You don't know how you're going to live. You know how you've lived so far. You may like your odds. You may not like your odds, maybe compared to other people, but you don't know. All the other religions say that, and they're te technically, therefore, you can't be sure you're saved till your life is fully lived, till it's over. And then, of course, it's too late. Christianity is the only religion that says you're not saved by your own life, you're saved by somebody else's life. See the difference? 
You're saved by the life and death of Jesus Christ. He brings you into relationship with God. And therefore, you can rest in his righteousness. He lived perfectly. He was counted righteous. He died on the cross for you. He rose again from the dead. Therefore, his verdict, so to speak, is already in. We know whether he can be trusted, he can. So you can rest assured in your salvation because it doesn't rest in your life, but in his. And once this gospel good news is in you, that I am accepted, I am adopted, I'm a child of God, what do I do? I want to learn how to live as a child of God. I want to start to reorient my life in such a way that I keep his commandments. So say it this way, the grounds of our faith is the finished work of Jesus. The evidence of our faith is our obedience. The grounds of our faith is the finished work of Jesus. The evidence of our faith is our obedience. Or flipping around, look at it the other way, like he does in verse four. If we do not keep his commands, then we have no evidence, we have no assurance that we are in fact truly saved. Uh, they used to say this when I, was a, when I was a kid. I heard somebody in youth group once say, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be a, preponderance of evidence? Would, there, would, 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 would you pass a, a beyond reasonable doubt? Now, does this mean we must be sinless in order to show we're saved? Of course not. John has just made the point that no one should say they're sinless. We talked about that last week. He's also reassured true Christians that when they sin, they have an advocate in Jesus Christ, the righteous. Obedience is loyalty. The trajectory of your life is to keep his commandments. And part of keeping his commandments is confessing your sin and repenting when you mess up. When you sin against him, that's part of what it means to keep his commandments. Uh, professor... Uh, Oh, it's been a couple years ago. Um, he, he, he was talking about this issue of assurance, and he said he would have, uh, um, you know, it's, it's down at, he, he taught some Bible classes at Samford, and from time to time, these uh, college students would come to him, and they'd just be a nervous wreck, and they would say, how do I know if I'm truly saved? What if I haven't repented enough? What if I haven't truly repented? I mean, I, I think I've repented of my sins and, 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 and placed my faith and trust in Jesus, but how do I know I've truly repented enough? And he would always smile and say, well, one way I think that you've shown you've repented enough is that you're worried about you haven't repented enough. People who haven't repented don't care. People who haven't truly repented, they don't care. They don't care as to whether or not they're truly right with God. But you... You long to be with God. You desire to be with God. What does that show? That shows that your trajectory of your life is to keep his commandments. And so he would look for evidence there. I thought it was an interesting way to look at it. Look at how John restates the same point in, uh, in, in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. He says the same thing. He just clarifies it and expands it in two ways. He says the exact same thing, but just clarifies it and expands it. Two ways. Look at, first of all, but whoever keeps his, he just said whoever, he just said that. Whoever keeps his commands, that's uh, the, the, the one who knows him. Here he expands it. Whoever keeps his word. Isn't that interesting? In verse 3 he says commandments. Here he says keeps his word. That's a good reminder. God's word is a whole lot more than just a bunch of list of commandments, isn't it? What else is in here? The promises of God. Uh, the goodness of God, the narrative of how God has redeemed for himself a people. And so John here is reminding us the Bible's not a book of rules for good little boys and girls to follow. And if you do good, you get rewarded and blessed. If you do bad, you get punished. No, it's a love story of the redemptive power of God to save his people. 
And that's the second thing that's different in this verse. You would think he would say, he's talking about commandments, right? Law, obedience, whoever keeps his word, you would think he would say, whoever keeps his word in him truly, the law of God is perfected. If you keep his commandments, you're perfectly fulfilling the law. That's not what he says. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, not the law of God is perfected, in him truly the love of God is perfected. That right there gets to the very heart of Christian obedience, doesn't it? Warren Wiersbe has a delightful illustration of this. He says that uh, parents must care for their children according to the law. Child neglect is a serious crime. He asks, but how many parents have a conversation like this when the alarm clock goes off in the morning? Eh, 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 eh. Honey, you better get up and go to work. We don't want to get arrested. Yes, dear, and you better get up and get breakfast for the kids. Get their clothes on or the cops might show up and put us both in jail. I tell you, it's a good thing they have a law or we'd neglect these kids. It's doubtful that the fear of the law, I mean, depending on the day, there's some parents like, well, (laughs) but it's doubtful the fear of the law is the motive behind earning a living or caring for one's children. Parents fulfill their responsibilities to their children if begrudgingly on occasion, but they fulfill it not as a matter of the law, but as a matter of love. Love for God is what motivates a person to obey God's commandments, really, without even thinking about them. When a person acts out of Christian love, he's obeying God and serving others, not because of fear, but because of her love for God. Uh, Think of it this way. When I sin against Jackie, I'm not worried about breaking the law. I'm not worried about the legal status of our marriage union. We're still married. No, I'm worried about breaking her heart. That's how love works. A Christian's not worried about breaking their legal status as a child of God. It's not about God's law. It's about we don't want to break God's heart. We love him. And the evidence of that love is what? We keep his commands. That's what it means when he says, whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. A Christian who loves God fulfills the law of God almost accidentally. See? I can't help myself. Uh, Valentine's Day is coming up. And uh, if uh, it, it just seems utterly ridiculous to think that you would go to your uh, Uh, spouse and say, honey, what is the absolute minimum I must spend on flowers for us to remain contractually married? (laughs) Well, the price just went up for you, buddy, (laughs) right? But when there's love, whether it's flowers or a a love note or whatever it is, it's, it's it's not so much about what's the bare minimum I can do for us to still be in, in some sort of legal transaction. There's all these flowers and there's these gifts and there's this love. and the, Why? Love fulfills these quote-unquote commands. Now he says the same thing one last way. By this we know we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him Verse six, ought to walk in the same way as he walked. So he, has now, he is saying the exact same thing a third way. If you're reading First John and you ever feel like, man, he repeats himself a lot, the reason you think that is because he repeats himself a lot. Maybe it's because we need it repeated a lot.
So he says the exact same thing a third way. But here's what's so powerful about the word of God. You can say he repeats himself, but if you look carefully, there is such profound insight. Every time he repeats himself, there's a little bit of nuance that adds, expands, that uh, gives texture to what he's trying to say. And this, the texture I see in here, notice, this is all I'll say about this. What a difference. He says, by this we know we're in him. Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk the same way in which he walked. And all I want you to see is notice with me that he does not say, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to talk the way Jesus talked. Why? We all know why. Because talk is cheap, isn't it? It's not just about parroting the right words, saying the right words. He doesn't say, hey, if you abide in Jesus, you got to talk the way Jesus talked. Anyone can say the right things. You know who else can talk the way Jesus talked? You know, else, you know who else can say all the right things? The demons in hell can say the right things, but they can't walk the way he walked. In fact, I was, as I was reading 1 John 2, I, I'm thinking, this is pretty strong language. And then, well, there's one place in the New Testament where I can think of that even stronger language is used. James 2.19, where James says, oh, you believe in God? You believe God is one? That's great. Even the demons believe in that. So what's the application here? Here's how you take away this, this first point, this, this moral test, this moral indicator. Some of us have been assessing our salvation by the wrong things. And sometimes we do this, we, we come back to it, but we, we assess our salvation on the wrong things. For example, some of us assume you can tell whether or not you're saved by some sort of subjective feeling. That if you, if you somehow feel his presence, then that gives you assurance of salvation. That's no sure indicator. Why? Because feelings are mercury, feelings are mercur, mercur, feelings change a lot. <laughs> that you can't trust them. They come and go. The best Christians in the world, when the alarm clock wakes up, they don't wake up out of yabba dabba do. What a great day to praise the Lord, right? They have grumpy days. They have sad days. They, they can't base it on a feeling. But some of us do that. We say, well, if I feel saved, then I must be saved. That's a terrible way to assess. Why? Because it's not biblical. It's not the way that here John is giving us. Others have been assessing our salvation. I hear this a lot. Well, you know, oftentimes people are clinging to anything, and I understand why. Oh, I know why. Because the pain, the ache, when you have a loved one, and they sure are not giving any evidence of their salvation, but our minds goes back to something they did long ago at VBS. And I've heard some people say, well, the way I can know I'm saved is I can remember way back. There's no evidence of any fruit of obedience, but I can remember way back in the day when I prayed the prayer. Well, I've read this whole Bible. And I can't find a the prayer anywhere. It's not in there. And some people are doubting because they, I've even met people who only found out later. They've been a Christian for years, faithfully walking with the Lord. And they only found out later that there was a the prayer that they were supposed to pray. And they're like, do I need to do that like retroactively? <laughs> now, let me be clear. There's nothing wrong with feeling saved. There's nothing wrong with the internal affirmation of the Holy Spirit. That's a good thing. I want that. What I'm saying is don't base your salvation on it. And there is nothing wrong with praying the prayer. I'm talking about leading someone in the sinner's prayer. I hope there's not because I, I, 
Just this weekend, I preached at a conference and led students in that prayer. So I hope not. I lead them in the prayer. Everybody with me? Nothing wrong with either of those things. But if you base your salvation in feelings, that's salvation by emotion. And if you base your salvation in whether or not you correctly prayed a certain set of magical words, that's salvation by works. You're saved by grace through faith alone. Feelings may come, feelings may not. You may have used a specific prayer to kind of give some training wheels to your very first prayer on the journey, but those are not the key assessments. I've met people racked with guilt, wondering, all their focus is backwards. Did I do the right things? Did I pray the right things? Did I? Their whole salvation, therefore, depends on them. And what I try to counsel them is, look forward on that day when you stand before God. Who do you trust to be there for you? They say, I trust Jesus. Do you trust yourself? Oh, no, no, no. I'll split hell wide open if it's up to me. I I just hope Jesus is there for me. All my faith is in Jesus. I said, listen to yourself. All your faith is in who? Jesus. I said, that sure sounds like someone. They're keeping his commands. My point is, stop assessing by the means God didn't give us. You're saved by grace through faith. And when that gospel reorients your life, you can't help but keep his commandments as the logical outcome. Now, you can think of it this way. You're saved by faith alone, but true faith is never alone. It displays itself in works. Your works is just your faith gone public. Uh, There's a sermon series called Faith Obedience. It's from uh, like 2019. You should Google it. Uh, uh, Coleman, First Baptist. All right. Here's where this parentheses happens, and this is where John sort of defies any preacher's attempt to make a logical flowing outline out of this. He just throws in this parenthesis. He's now, that's, that's the moral test, and now he's going to talk about the love test, right? But he throws in this like transition because he, he, he wants to set up this command to love one another. Love for others. So here we go, verse 7 and 8. I don't know what else to do other than just say it's kind of sort of point two. It's a parenthesis, right, that comes right before the, uh, the love test. And he says, the command of love is not a new command, but it's fresh. Look at what he says, verse 7 and 8. Beloved. I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. In other words, there's nothing new here. The command to love one another is old, like old, old, like goes all the way back to the Torah, goes all the way back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where the word of God says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's an old command. And he's telling his people, as soon as you got saved, that's one of the first things you heard. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in that sense, it is an old command. It is an ancient command. But in another sense, it's brand new. It's fresh. Look at verse 8. At the same time, this old command, at the same time, it is a new commandment I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What's he saying? He's saying it's new in him and in you. In other words, the way Jesus displayed this love, and now because of the Holy Spirit, the way you display it, this has made it new. Not new in the sense that it's altogether novel, but new in the sense of fresh. If Jackie is making sandwiches for the kids or something, she says, hand me, a, hand me that loaf of bread. And I reach in the pantry, not looking, and I grab an old loaf of bread, and I hand it to her, and it's all crusty and, and stale. She says, no, no, no. Throw this away. It's old bread. I'm pretty sure there's some new bread in the pantry. 
She does not mean new bread that has never been seen by humans before, the chemical structure of which molecularly has utterly reshaped what we define as bread. She doesn't mean that. What she means is the fresh bread. Well, love one another is an old command, but there's something new about it in Jesus and by extension in you. John, I'm convinced, has to be thinking of what Jesus himself said in John 13, 34. He stood before his disciples and said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And everybody scratched their head and said, how can this be a new commandment? He finishes with, just as I have loved you, that's how you're to love one another. Well, now that does make it new, as in fresh. Why? Well, I want to move quickly because I want to get to this, this love test in, in, in closing. But, 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 but let me just linger here for a second. What makes it new? When Jesus says this is a new command, when John says it is, there is a sense in which it's a fresh command, what makes love one another new? Jesus showed us it's new in emphasis, it's new in extent, it's new in quality. You might say it has new dimensions. It has a new height, a new width, and a new depth to it, never before seen. What do I mean by a new height, a new emphasis? Jesus took the love command and elevated it head and shoulders above the other commands. When he was asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment in the law, most people were scared to answer that question because they said, well, all sin is equal, all commands are important, and all commands are important. But Jesus wasn't afraid to say, no, there's a greatest, there's a number one, there's a gold medal, and the greatest commandment in the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he says the silver medal, the second commandment, is just like it, just like it. So it's like a, a one, one, a, one and one A, love your neighbor as yourself. How can you do that? He says, because on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. How can a command to love stand head and shoulders above the rest? Because the command to love subsumes all the other commands. If you love somebody, you won't break commandment eight. You won't steal from them. If you love somebody, you won't break commandment six. Whichever one that is, you won't break it. Not murder, you won't murder, you won't murder them, right? If you love somebody, uh, like your mama and daddy, you'll do what? You'll, you'll follow commandment five. You'll honor your father and mother. If you love God, guess what? You won't break commandment three. You won't take his name in vain. Why? Because when you love people, there's certain words you couldn't force yourself to say. Why? They're not in your heart to ever say them. I have never heard of two people getting a divorce, sitting there in the divorce court going, what's your problem? The problem is we are madly and head over heels in love with each other. That's not going to happen. Why? Because if you're madly head over heels in love with each other, divorce is not even a, you see? The emphasis. Romans says it this way, Romans 13. uh, The one who loves uh, if you love one another, you fulfill the law. Because the commandments, now, thou shalt not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love, therefore, Paul writes, is fulfilling the law. Romans 13. So it's a new emphasis. It's, he sets it higher. There's a new extent. You might say the width. Everyone loves people who love them back. Jesus, probably most famously, Jesus taught us to love those, even, there can be love, even those who are different from us, even those who are enemy. The most famous story of that would probably be the, 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 story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where it shows the extent of God's love and the quality of his love. Have we ever heard of anyone who loves us like Jesus? What he went through for us and our salvation. Romans 5, 8 says, this is how God demonstrates his love toward us while we were still sinners. 
Christ died for us. And of course, with the resurrection of Jesus, the, the, a whole new age is dawning. The kingdom is coming, and we pray for more and more people. The darkness is passing away. True light is already shining, and one day, that king is going to come in fullness. I saw somebody with a, uh, uh, at this Christian conference had a t-shirt on. I love it. I loved it. She had this t-shirt. I said, where did you get that? Because she was so fed up, like all of us, with COVID, and it said, it just said very simply, normal is not coming back, but Jesus is. I thought, that will preach tomorrow at my church. <laughs> and it just did. <laughs> Normal's not coming back, but Jesus is. I'm not looking at once was. I'm not looking at what was. I'm, I'm p- putting all my faith and trust in 1 John 2, verse 8. That darkness is passing away. That light is coming. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray every day, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let just one more person come under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ today because of me. Let your kingdom advance. Let one more square inch of this universe, which is already rightfully the property of the king, which is being ruled by a rebel, Satan, right now, who will be crushed in the end. But right now, there is disputed territory. Let just a little bit more territory come under the rule and reign of my Lord Jesus Christ. Let your kingdom come. Why? Because it's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of love. And that's why John says if you're in this kingdom and you don't love, it doesn't make any sense. And that leads us to this second indicator. Don't worry, we'll do this quickly. The second indicator, the second test is the love test. You want to know you're truly saved, truly in the light of God? Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother, is still in darkness. Oh, the love of God. Now we move to love of neighbor. He says, you want to say you're in the light, but you hate? Hate always blinds us. Most of us, I think, would let ourselves off the hook and say, well, I would never hate anyone. Oh, but there's degrees of hate. Remember, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't think because you've never physically murdered someone that you've never been guilty of murder. If you have the kind of heart that has seeds of anger in it, that sometimes spills out into hurtful words, he says, well, those are murder seeds. You might think of it this way. First degree hate is actually physically harming someone. But second degree hate is wishing for them to be harmed. You say, well, I would never do that. Really? Have you ever had envy? When you have envy for someone, admit it. You secretly cheer when they get knocked down a peg. That's second degree hate. And third degree hate is indifference. I don't even care what happens to them. Matthew 5, Jesus says at the Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering your gift on the altar, it's worthless as long as you've got a wrong deed that you've not made up to your brother. To say we walk in the light of God's love and forgiveness, that love will spill out toward others. On the other hand, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. This is a profound insight. When we walk in love, it's like, Light illuminates our path. We see others more clearly, and we see how we can avoid sinning against them. Why? Because we're concerned about them. We don't want them to stumble and fall. Love has a way of clearing our eyesight. And finally, the person with hatred, on the other hand, is blind. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. This will be our last verse. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Oh, this grieves every. This grieves every Christian. You've seen it, perhaps. There is a vicious downward spiral in the breakdown of human relationships. Do you see that? This is subtle. Don't miss it. Hatred is darkness, likened to darkness. And everyone knows you can't see in the dark. But look carefully. He doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Hatred 
not only is like a darkness, but imagine a darkness that promotes blindness. There's an active degeneration of eyesight that hatred brings. Do do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't just mean it puts you in a dark room where you can't see. It does something to your eyesight where you won't be able to see in the future either. It actually, the darkness blinds eyes. It happens through a phenomenon that over, Jackie and I have been ministering together almost two decades in the uh, 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 we, we've seen this, we, we have a little nickname, we call it the lenses. The lenses. <laughs> if you have a pair of lenses on through which you see your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that basically these lenses are, this person is for me. They love me. They care about me. Man, then it's win-win. Because if you ever do something good to me, it just con- it's confirmation bias. It just confirms what I've always known. See? See, just more evidence that you're for me. I knew it. And then if you ever do something that offends me, I think, well, that's out of character. That, there must be an explanation for that. We're going to get through this. That's no big deal. Why? Because I know they love me. It's win-win. When you got the lenses of this person, there's love here. Oh, but when the lenses of hate get put on. Nobody would call it hate. They would just call it the lenses. It's the way you color a relationship, the way it's viewed. It goes like this. It, start, it always starts out, Satan, I think, uses a lot of those little things. You heard the devil's in the details. It starts out with a little offense. You didn't get invited. She snubbed you. He said hi to everybody else, and did you notice when he walked past me, he coughed. He probably didn't want to speak to me. Something little. And your friends are saying, really? I, it could have just been he coughed, you know. Da, 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 da. Why? You got the lenses on. And once you put those lenses on that say, you're against me, then it's always lose, lose. Because if you do something bad, it's just confirmation bias. See, that further proves they're against me. I knew it. I knew it all along. Here's the evidence. And nobody can talk you out. Why? Because you got the lenses. Here's the worst part. When they do something good, You don't think, well, now that contradicts my opinions. Maybe I ought to rethink my opinions of them. No, when they do something good, you immediately go, I wonder what their real motive is. Really, they literally baked you a cake. You better check it for cyanide, you know. (laughs) Now, you think that's crazy, except for the fact that we've all seen that happen. We've had a friend that we've tried to talk out of that, hey, What John is saying is, when those lenses get on, there is a downward spiral because hatred blinds, and Satan loves it. Hatred blinds, but love, John says, love sees straight, thinks clearly, makes us balance in our outlook, judgments, and conduct. What's the application? A true Christian is not okay. Just like, just like the application for that first test, stop assessing yourself based on things the Bible didn't give us in the same thing. Uh, you can know a true Christian, one of the, and I hope this is very affirming to you because you're like this, a true Christian is not okay spiritually to just keep on worshiping when there's hatred brewing with somebody. You don't like that. You know there's something wrong. Red flags are going off and you need to be reconciled and love and forgive. Well, that's, Walking in the light because you don't want to be in the darkness. Chuck's going to come and uh, lead us in a time of response and invitation. I hope that these two tests, of course, you know we've got a, a third indicator coming, obviously, right, uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, the uh, doctrinal test. But it really all goes back to Jesus. I, I, I tried to say in that business about, you know, what's new about the love of Jesus 
no one loves like Jesus. I read something last week that has really stuck with me and I can't get it out of my head. This kind of love, right? It, it's not like clean yourself up and get to God. No, 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 no. You just go to God. And if you failed in all these areas, there's so much grace, you go to him. How do I know? How do I know that he's gonna receive you? How do I know that there's grace for you? How do I know that there's grace for me? How do I know that, like Chuck said earlier, how do I know that it's so sweet that I can trust in Jesus? Well, this is what I read, and I can't quit thinking about it. Uh, I don't know why I didn't think about it earlier. That's how a lot of truth is. You wonder, where, where's this been? When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, Psalm 22. It was a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the writer I was reading said, do you know the answer to that question? You should. You see him in the mirror every day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that Tom, Tom can come home. So that you can come home. The Son of God forsaken on a bloody cross of Calvary for you and me to never be separated from our Heavenly Father. Nobody loves like that. When that love touches your heart, how can you not just be a little gentler to your neighbor? How can you not want to follow his commands? How, even, when you break his heart, you want to get right with him immediately. You want to get, how can you not? That's what First John is saying. That's the mark so that you can know that you know. Let's pray. God, grant us grace, we pray. Grant us grace. For anyone here who's discovering the sharp edges of what First John is saying, and perhaps they realize they're not yet a believer, that today would be that day. They don't gamble with eternity another moment, but today would be that day they receive you as Lord and Savior. And I pray for those who are saved, who wrestle with condemnation and walking in guilt and shame and doubt, and they have no assurance that First John would grant to them the assurance from the Word of God that they need and they can enjoy and they can walk in freedom that they may know, children of the light. Grant us grace in this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.